At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Jimmy Johnson, and we're going to be talking about a subject that interests us, hopefully it interests you, Benjamin Keach and one of his more important or at least popular works, The Travels of True Godliness. So to begin us, first, I will uh, give us a biographical sketch of Benjamin Keach, and also uh, you can look back to some of our previous episodes uh, in the show notes where we have talked about Benjamin Keach. But by way of sketch, Benjamin Keach was born in Stoke Hammond in the country of Buckinghamshire, England, on February 29th, 1640. As you hear that, that is leap year. Uh, He was the sixth of seven children born to John and Joyce Keach. All of the children in this family were sprinkled in the local Anglican church. Benjamin's baptism date was March 6th, 1640, or we Credo Baptists might say his sprinkling date was March 6th, 1640. In 1655, when Benjamin was 15 years old, he professed faith in Christ, and this time he was baptized by immersion by a general Baptist pastor named John Russell. In the years before this, Keach had come under the influence of a man whom he called the blessed instrument of my conversion. That person was Matthew Mead. And so, um, After being baptized by immersion by a general Baptist pastor named John Russell, uh, in 1658, Benjamin Keach began preaching the gospel in general Baptist churches in and around Winslow. When Keach's ministry began, the religious atmosphere in England allowed for toleration for Baptists. Um, Austin Walker, who has written a biography on Benjamin Keach, writes the following about this. The first 20 years of Benjamin Keach's life saw a severe reduction of power and influence in the Church of England. New religious and political ideas spread by chaplains and preachers in the parliamentary army and attempts to promote toleration. A very different atmosphere prevailed in the country compared to that which existed prior to the Civil Wars. Separatist groups like General Baptists flourished during this period. So the toleration of general general Baptists and other nonconformists was flourishing during this time period, but it would not last long, though. Uh, In 1664, Benjamin Keach was indicted for violating the Act of Uniformity. His book, The Child's Instructor or a New and Easy Primer, expressed credo-Baptist convictions. Keach was jailed and fined for not recanting of his works. And additionally, 
as you probably know of Keach, he was placed in the pillory, uh, which is, I can't describe it that well, like a little wooden uh, holding of a person where you put your arms through the holes and you put your head through the main hole. That's the pillory. Keach was placed in a pillory to be publicly mocked. But he used this as an opportunity to preach the gospel that he would encounter. And so when persecution arose, Keach did not cower. But because of this act that happened uh, here in Buckinghamshire, everyone knew him in the area. And he was a marked man, I believe Austin Walker describes him as in his biography. And so in 1668, Keach made the decision to move his family from Buckinghamshire to London to escape this persecution, not because he was fearful of it, but because of his reputation as a marked man in Buckinghamshire. He was soon ordained as the pastor of the Baptist Church in Horsleydown, Southwark of London, where he would serve for 36 years. Within only a couple of years of his move to Southwark, Keach would make a significant conversion from his general Baptist theology of his early ministry to the theology espoused by particular Baptists. And from what I have studied and uh, talked to with others, little is known about how or uh, the direct influence for why Keach shifted from general Baptist theology to particular Baptist theology. Although there, there is some speculating about that, and perhaps Jimmy might speak to that in just a moment. But due to this move to London and his shift in particular Baptist theology, Keach would develop new and lasting friendships with men like William Kiffin, of whom we've previously talked about on the podcast, and Hansard Knollis. And these three men uh, specifically were signatories of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, Benjamin Keach would marry Jane Grove of Winslow in 1660 when he was 20 years of age. Uh, they had three children to together, Mary, Elias, and Hannah. Two years after the Keach family moved from Buckinghamshire to London, Jane died, leaving these three children behind. This was in 1670. Uh, in 1672, Benjamin married his second wife, Susanna Partridge, and to this union, they had four children together, all girls, Elizabeth, Susanna, Rachel, and Rebecca. And on July 18th of 1704, Benjamin Keach died at his home in Southwark, London. And throughout Keach's ministry, he found himself in several theological disputes. He was involved in the hymn singing controversy. He advocated the laying on of hands as an ordinance of the church. He wrote against Quakerism, infant baptism, and Seventh-day Sabbath observance for Christians. And um, he wrote a lot. And so for the remaining part of this episode, we're going to talk about one of the more uh, popular level books that he has written, The Travels of True Godliness. But uh, before we move on to that, Jimmy, do you have any comments about anything we said in the sketch? Or do you just want to get right into the, the book? I think I'm ready to just get right into the book. I mean, as for why Keach converted, uh, for lack of a better word, from Arminian theology to, to the Calvinistic theology of the particular Baptists, I will humbly say I have no idea why or, or what influence it was. It, it was likely relationships that he had 
with some of those, those of his most popular works. And that is, as Austin already has said more than once, the travels of true godliness. And the travels of true godliness is an allegory. Um, it, it follows a personification of true godliness as true godliness travels to different places and to different people desiring to enter. Um, and the person who lets true godliness in, of course, is a person who, who is of true faith in, in the Lord Jesus um, and repents of their sin, repents of their trusting in self. There's, there's neonomians in there. If for the callback to our Baxterian episode, there's, there's legalist. Um, I believe there's someone who, who represents a papist or a Roman Catholic for a more politically correct way to describe them. But he, true godliness travels all over until he finds a place that actually lets him in. And that is genuine, true, real Christianity. Now, what we're going to talk about in particular is not the whole of the book. I just basically summed what, what it is, but we're gonna talk about the very first chapter that that sets up a foundation for all that follows in the rest of the book. And I think it's very helpful because Keats sets out in the first chapter, not allegorically, but more didactically to, to teach what true godliness actually is, what it consists of. And I just want to highlight the three major components that he gives. And Austin, after each one, I'll give you an opportunity if you, you have an, a comment to go ahead and comment in or see how it might practically apply or something like that. But number one, and this is practically from the very words of Keats. Sometimes I, I edit it a little bit, but godliness consists in the knowledge of divine truths and fundamental principles of the gospel required for a person to be saved. And then he goes on to explain what principles are included. So, number one, the doctrine of the triune God as the one true God. Number two, the Bible of the sacred scripture as the final rule and authority in matters of faith and life, which teaches us our purpose, our sin, and the redemption God has accomplished in Jesus for our justification. Number three, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. He is the second person of the Trinity incarnate. Two natures, unmixed, and one person. The eternal son assumed humanity and became the only mediator between God and man. Redemption, peace, and reconciliation are by this Lord Jesus alone. Number four, the doctrine of justification is by faith alone. Keats writes that justification and pardon of sin are alone by the full satisfaction which Christ made to God's justice and are apprehended by faith alone through the Holy Spirit. Number five, the doctrine of regeneration and sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It is only by the powerful inner working of the Holy Spirit and bringing a man from spiritual death from to life that one can be saved. Number six, the doctrine of the final resurrection in the last day. And then number seven, the doctrine of the final judgment where all will give an account. Those who are united to Jesus will enjoy a future state of eternal happiness 
those who reject Jesus will have a future state of torment and misery. Do you have any comments or practical applications that you can think of from that, Austin? Well, it may be uh, helpful to consider some of the polemical writings of his life and some that are even alluded to in this book, and I'll kind of throw the question back at you. Um, I think from this list that you gave us, we're seeing essential primary issues of orthodoxy of which true godliness consists of. Um, How might Romanism or Quakerism uh, not be considered true godliness as that is something that Keach wrote about in his day and he's writing about in this book? I'll throw the question back at you. As for Quakerism, it would be the second point of doctrine, the sacred scriptures as the final rule and authority in matters of faith and life, as, as Quakers taught at that time. And I, I'm sure they still believe that the inner light of a person um, might even overrule the, the holy writ that we find within scripture. Romanism would, of course, I mean, err in that same category. And then it further errs in the doctrine of justification, which is by faith alone. And in other areas of dispute that would have been going on at this time, as you have neonomianism, which would also err on the side of the doctrine of justification, that one is justified um, not only by faith, but also by keeping a new law um, that is made the law of Christ, as, as they commonly say. And that would be how those, a few of those major doctrines um, were attacked in Keech's days, and it makes sense that he would highlight them. But even if those weren't going on, these are very just fundamental Christian beliefs that that if one rejects them, they fail the doctrinal test that we find in First John. Even as so, he, I think he's exactly right on this. You can't have true godliness divorced from sound doctrine. Hmm. So. If- First, godliness consists in the knowledge of divine truths and fundamental principles of the gospel required for a, first, for a person to be saved. What, what is the next part that you want to share with us? Yes. So secondly, godly connect, or consist in a holy conformity to these principles by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So these principles include the work of regeneration resulting in repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. It includes that our definitive sanctification, a transfer from the reigning power of sin to Jesus reigning over us. Thus, we will hate and forsake sin. We will also love and obey Christ as a pattern in our life. And Keach writes this under this heading, a true Christian desires grace, not only that God would glorify him in heaven, but that he may glorify God in or, or on earth. So the principles of doctrine stated above, um, a true godliness desires to be conformed to those principles of sound doctrine by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, I was just thinking of Hebrews 12 in uh, a verse that I read this morning in my devotional time which speaks of without holiness, we will not see the Lord. I'm trying to think of which verse it is off the top of my head. It's, it was in the context of 
receiving discipline discipline from the the Lord and being conformed to righteousness and perhaps some of these things in his book are direct teachings or quotations from scripture on these principles i mean we would we would say they're direct teachings but i mean almost direct quotations from scripture itself well and that's that's common amongst not only baptist of course but but baptists in particular oftentimes even in their confessional documents where where it is um able to be done will will directly quote scripture or or almost verbatim quote scripture but that would be the second point in a nutshell that we would be conformed to these principles that were stated in the first point by the principles or by the supernatural power of the holy spirit so the the third point if you don't mind me going on is godliness consists in beautiful external habits that the outwork or that are the outworking of the power of the Holy Spirit. And these habits include a wise and humble adherence to God's will revealed in Scripture and a rejection of false religion and ceremonies like those of the false Roman church. Do what God says and don't add to it the regulations of men. It also includes the outward works of godliness are apart from are a part, one second, are apart from the inward life and the power of godliness is, er, okay. The outward works of godliness that are apart from inward life or the inward life and the power of godliness is false godliness. So what he's getting at there is that if there is no like internal work going on in the Holy Spirit, no matter what outward works you do, they, they are not true godliness. If there is not a true love for God um, that has been produced by the Holy Spirit, then no matter what your outward acts are, you are not exercising true godliness. Obedience must be the fruit of a love for God, which is itself a fruit of God, the Holy Spirit's work on the heart of the elect. Keats writes, you must be sure to receive the power of godliness with his form. For his form, without his inward life and power, will do you no good. It is but as the body without the soul, or the shell without the kernel, or the cabinet without the jewel. So as Keech often does, he likes to use metaphors to illustrate principles that he's trying to, to draw out. And I mean, if we were to wrap up what Keech essentially wants to do in this work is he wants to show that godliness is not a negotiable component of the Christian life. Now, if you go back and listen to our episode on Richard Baxter and neo-nomianism, you'll, you'll find that Baxter was very like distraught about the antinomian spirit amongst the soldiers that he was working with. So he, he modified the doctrine of justification into a type of legalism to amend or to correct this moral degeneration that he saw, whereas Keech holding firmly to orthodoxy is about as far from an antinomian as you can be. He, he, is a, he believes in the genuine doctrine of justification. However, he believes that the one who is truly justified will likewise be truly sanctified. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit and not through the mere correction of behavior in order to, to attain justification, um, which is what, what Baxter basically believed. Um, particular Baptists like Keats saw God's grace as more than just provisional. Um, it is effectual to the conversion, justification, adoption, and glorification of every one of God's elect people. Godliness is a fruit of true evangelical grace. Therefore, as Keach teaches in his allegory, the travels of true godliness, welcome godliness and all that comes with it. He will benefit you now and eternally. Do you have any comments or, or applications that you'd like to add? Austin? Uh, I, I think the words that are set there in the last sentence you shared with us are a good place to, for me at least, to conclude. Whenever you said, welcome godliness and all that comes with it, he will benefit you now and eternally. That is the, the essence of, of this book, this allegorical work, and these three points that you've shared with us. So I think you've done a, well, a good job of bringing us to a conclusion. Well, amen. So with that said, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Austin, thank you for giving us a biographical sketch. And to our listeners, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.